0: Thank you very much, Sarah. All right, um, we will ne- uh, at this point in time, if your kiddos uh, would like uh, grades three and below, they can go downstairs for their scripture lesson. Matt? And so if one of those would be a blessing to you, please grab one. And if keeping it would bless you, keep it. And if giving it to someone else would be good, then please feel free to take it. Matthew 15. I wonder what you would say to the question of what the best meal you've ever had was. I remember a Christmas Eve dinner from several years ago that contained, to my tastes, maybe the best steak I've ever had, which you're used to getting at like a fancy restaurant, but I just remember that Christmas Eve meal being this perfect cut of steak. makes my mouth water just thinking about it, and I do apologize for having brought up food getting close to lunchtime. I also wonder what you would say is the best measurement for whether or not a meal that you've eaten qualifies for a top-ranking meal that you've ever had. There are a lot of things that can factor in here, obviously. The taste, the variety of dishes or or sides maybe on the dish. The company around the table, of course, is a huge factor of whether or not you're enjoying the meal, and then even the occasion of the meal, whether it's an ordinary day or a special holiday. Here's what I think of, though. I think of the word satisfaction, satisfaction being the key to whether or not a meal qualifies in the best meal ever discussion. You see, a decent meal that there's nothing to complain about could still leave you wanting if there are one or two elements that could have been better. A great meal can be ruined by there not being enough. And a meal that's really not good for you at all but leaves you feeling filled can be quite the satisfying experience. I remember being of junior high age and in a phase of growing quite rapidly and our family having had the occasion to eat supper at a buffet-style restaurant and going back over and over and over again until I was truly full and sitting back in the booth or chair that I was in when I was done and said, this is the first time that I've ever felt full. (laughs) Of course, my mother was not a fan of hearing that because she has faithfully fed me, or I should say she did faithfully feed me when I was a kid. But a satisfying meal can be quite memorable. And I suspect that even though the meal that our passage today describes was not one that is... Described for us as a meal filled with mouth-watering delicacies and impressive recipes. It was one, I suspect, that its participants never forgot. I wonder if I can almost guarantee it. I think what we'll see today, that this unexpected meal, this meal served by Jesus to Gentiles served as both a vital indicator of what Jesus had come to do and a foreshadowing of a meal of a rather different sort that we will actually enjoy together when the sermon is concluded. This is the third week in a row that we've spent on this section in Matthew 15 that really could have been taken all in one. The trouble with taking it all in one is that we would have missed some really important expositional details and personal applications. And so we've taken them in smaller bites, meal pun intended in this sermon, leading up to today's final passage in chapter 15, where Jesus is ministering in this Galilean region. And so in case a brief refresher might help you, here's the gist of where we're at in Matthew 15. Jesus had recently left the Jewish region of Gennesaret, where he had this momentous confrontation with the Pharisees and scribes because of his teaching regarding how contrary to their legalistic traditions indicated, foods that go into your mouth don't defile you. The words that come out of your mouth do. That was verses 1 through 20 of chapter 15. And after that, he left the Jewish region, both geographically and we could say ideologically, and in verses 21 through 28, went into Tyre and Sidon, a pagan Gentile region, in order that he might heal and test the faith of a Canaanite woman. Then in verses 29 through 31, he went farther down into the Decapolis region to heal many more people. And now here we are at the end of chapter 15, where we see Jesus doing something so similar to something else that Matthew recorded just a little bit earlier that we may sometimes forget that this one happened. I suspect that there may be some in this very room who don't realize that this feeding of the 4,000 isn't the same event as the perhaps more famous feeding of the 5,000 that Matthew recorded just one chapter earlier. But it's not the same event. It's a different event in a different location that Matthew records. The feeding of the 5,000 in Matthew 14 has, for whatever reason, just become more famous than the feeding of the 4,000, at least in my upbringing in Christianity. Which I actually think doesn't make a lot of sense for those of us who are Gentiles, because the messianic ministry of Jesus to Gentiles as he fed the 4,000 is especially applicable to us. And that's really the point here. Jesus's messianic power displayed in a miraculously provided meal that was not just for the Jews as he had done in Matthew 14, but for the whole world. And if that sounds like the same kind of thing I've been saying over the last few weeks, it's because that's been the point of the last few passages, and that's why they really could have been taken all in one shot, I suppose. But what I'd like to do is take a little bit of a risk and assume that you've either been listening for the last few weeks or that you'll go back and listen to what you haven't heard so that I don't rehash everything that I've already said about the amazing wonder of the Christ being for the Gentiles also. But not because that main point isn't worth rehashing. It certainly is. God forbid that any of us would ever become accustomed to the news that we who were once far off have been brought near by the shed blood of Christ. Rather, because what I'd like to do is to zoom in and focus on some of the specifics of this passage. We've basically got three main character groups in this passage. Jesus, the disciples, and the crowd. And so those are the three lenses, so to speak, with which I'd like to observe and learn from God's word here. So lens number one is the crowds, and specifically, I want to call your attention to what this text tells us about what the crowd got right. You see what Jesus observes about this crowd in verse 32. Jesus calls his disciples to him and says, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat and I am unwilling to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. Now this must be the same crowd or at least mostly the same as Jesus ministered to in the previous passage in verses 29 through 31. The crowd there that Jesus ministered to. It says in verse 30, great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. This was a group of Hellenistic Gentiles, which we talked about last week, essentially meaning Greekified people. People who lived in the Decapolis were heavily influenced by Greek culture, Greek Uh, Religion as well, and as I said probably some of these people may have had Jewish origins But the actual geographical location was a Gentile region and so was its culture and so these are by and large Gentile people who have come to Jesus for healing and who after being healed became unexpected instruments of God's exaltation glorifying God verse 31 said the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking the crippled healthy the lame walking and the blind seeing and they glorified the god of israel it's right after that in verse 32 that jesus speaks of this same crowd and it's about this crowd of gentiles who had come to him for help that jesus says he feels compassion for them because they had continued to stay with him apparently for three days and were now hungry Now, what exactly that means, we don't know for sure. It could mean that they hadn't eaten in three days or that since they'd been there for three days, they had run out of whatever food they had brought. I tend to think that's more likely, but it doesn't really matter. The point is, their determination, and this is the point I'm making here, their determination, their commitment to stay with Jesus led to their physical hunger. And here's what I think this Gentile crowd got right. They had some sense that staying in the presence of Jesus was more vital for them in the long run than even the immediate satisfaction of their physical hunger. And I don't want to make more out of this than there is in this passage. We're not told anything that someone said anything about being willing to go on a fast or that anyone made some kind of ultimatum about, I'm never going to leave Jesus aside no matter what it takes. But it is clear in this text that the people didn't have food and they didn't appear to be going anywhere. And that's why I'm saying that these people wanted Jesus apparently even more than they wanted food. And that is the right way to think about Jesus and being in his presence. Again, we're not told all of their reasoning. Perhaps some of them thought... I just watched him heal my grandma of her blindness, so I'm pretty sure he's not going to let us go hungry. And if anyone thought that, they would have been right. Maybe some of them thought something along the lines of, I'm getting really hungry. I'm not sure how much more of this I can take, but I'll give it a little while longer because there's something about this guy, and I want more. And that would have been right too. The point that I'm making is not that they were all super spiritual and pious and fully understood what Jesus meant when he said in John 6, I am the bread of life, whoever comes to me shall never hunger. But I am saying that to some extent, that kind of belief, that kind of understanding of who Jesus is was present. And to whatever extent there was any reasoning along those lines, they at least got that right. Again, I don't want to belabor this more than it needs, but isn't this something that we should get right? These people had heard about and then experienced what Jesus could do and concluded that it was more necessary for them to stay right there with him even if it meant physical hunger. Why? Because in the presence of Jesus, there is spiritual satisfaction that surpasses the satisfaction that comes physically when eating food. And oh, Redeemer Bible Church, may we as a church and as families and as individuals be so convinced that there is nothing and no one more satisfying than Jesus. And that we are willing to let go of even some of our most basic human needs and desires for the sake of simply being in his presence, if that's what it takes. You might be thinking, I see what you're getting at, but dude, listen, Jesus isn't here anymore. If he was here, you better believe I'd go be where he was. But oh, my friend, he is here. His physical presence isn't with us in the same way that it was then, and that it will be one day when we gather with him forever in the new heavens and earth. But did you know, my friend, that the Bible teaches that Jesus is with us when we gather like this? And that he is Always with us to the end of the age, Jesus said to his disciples, through the indwelling presence of his spirit. And did you know that when we read the scriptures, we're listening to him speak? And when we take some time in quiet for some prayer and some stillness and maybe even silence before the Lord, we're fellowshipping with him right there and right then. And so no, of course I'm not under any delusions that Jesus is physically standing around the corner on 4th Avenue. But I am saying that when we don't gather with the body on a Sunday, we're missing out on the presence of Jesus. And when we neglect to spend time meditating on God's word or in prayer, we're missing out on the presence of Jesus. And so yes, I am saying that we all need to see that at least some of the people in this crowd understood That there's no greater priority than the presence and power of Jesus in our lives. And that we must be willing to do whatever it takes to let go of whatever we might need to let go of. And to sacrifice anything in our lives that we might need to sacrifice. Even the most basic need for nutrition if necessary. In order to be with him. That's lens number one. What the crowd got right. Lens number two is the disciples, and interestingly, but perhaps not so surprisingly, they got something wrong. Verse 33 says that the disciples said to Jesus, Where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? As my mom used to say to me, and as I now say to our children at times, what's wrong with this picture? I think you could easily miss it if you're not following closely. The disciples say to Jesus, where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? Think about what these disciples are saying in the context in which they're saying it. Was there anything that Jesus had recently done for us recorded just one chapter previous? That should have informed their thinking and their words and their actions when faced with this situation. You may not even need to turn a page or scroll up very far on your device. Look at chapter 14 and in verse 14 and following it says, He went ashore and saw a great crowd he had compassion on them and healed their sick and when it was evening the disciples came to him and said this is a desolate place and the day is now over send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves but jesus said they need not go away you give them something to eat they said to him we have only five loaves here and two fish and he said bring them here to me And he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds, and they all ate and were satisfied, and they took up twelve baskets full of the broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about five thousand men, besides women and children. In chapter 14, we've got a big crowd of hungry people in the middle of nowhere who needed food, and Jesus miraculously provided it. And I always want to be slow to be too hard on the disciples because I truly have no delusions of being any better at following Jesus than they are. But here they are just one chapter later, at least as it's recorded for us, and there's a bunch of hungry people in the middle of nowhere... Who need food. And they're still with the same Jesus who had already provided miraculously previously. And their comment to our Lord isn't, oh Lord, we've seen you graciously provide for a huge crowd like this before, even recently, and so we are asking you, would you consider doing that again? But rather it's, how are we going to come up with enough food to feed these people? Oh friends, isn't that just like us? We who have seen the Lord Jesus provide so many times and in so many ways and be gracious to us over and over again, yet as soon as anything stressful or frustrating or challenging rears its ugly head, we are so slow to remember who he is and what he has done for us. Maybe for us it's a work situation that changes or some sort of chronic health issue that's flaring up. A relationship problem is bubbling. Finances are suddenly very tight. Dreams and hopes and plans for the future are dashed. And what do we do? We complain. We get angry. We doubt and question the goodness and wisdom and power of God. We begin to be cynical, perhaps resentful, pessimistic, irritable, oversensitive, defensive. And before we know it, what started as a seemingly small seed in a moment of distrust has spiraled into a dangerous weed of discontentment or lack of faith. And so, oh friends, may we who are also disciples of Jesus be quick, not slow, to remember the goodness and power and wisdom of God exercised graciously for us over and over and over again in the past in moments where our earthly and fleshly senses may tempt us to forget him. And really, that's the main point of this whole episode. The person and work. Of Jesus and so the final character lens obviously is the central character of the whole book of the Bible and Matthew's Gospel, which is Jesus what I'd like to see is what Jesus's ministry looks like here Considering both what this passage tells us about Jesus's ministry and how it affects us now and so here's this situation Just like before where Jesus is surrounded by needy people and just like before in chapter 14 He has compassion on them and takes care of their need And I've said this before but it's important to say again. We need to be careful not to oversimplify What's happening when Jesus performs a miracle we need to avoid dumbing it down as it were to a mere showing off of his supernatural powers The point of his miracles was to evidence his nature as the Messiah and to act out his mission of serving as the Messiah. So it was a very intentional thing that Jesus did. And while we have to be careful to not oversimplify it, neither should we miss the beautiful, simple things that are going on as Jesus ministers to these needy people, such as his compassion. It's the same thing that's recorded in chapter 14. What he says in verse 32, I have compassion on the crowd. He says that in chapter 14 as well in verse 14. He had compassion on them. It's utterly astonishing, isn't it? To meditate on the fact that the King of kings and Lord of lords who's benevolent and gracious laws have been routinely disobeyed and disregarded by his people would look on those people with compassion that's astonishing what was the last time my friend that you were utterly amazed at the compassion of christ to you I don't just mean the compassion of Jesus towards sinners in general as if it's those people out there. When was the last time you were amazed at God's compassion towards you? Friend, the very fact that any of us is even breathing right now is due to the mercy and grace of God and his compassion on us. And the fact that any of us has ever come to faith and repentance turning from sin and turning to Christ and is then transformed into this blessed child having once been a rebellious enemy is only because of the compassion of Christ. And so Redeemer Bible Church, look at the compassion of Christ revealed to us in this passage and be amazed. And anyone within the sound of my voice who has never turned from sin and turned to Jesus as king, look at his compassion. Consider what he's done having come to earth to serve, to live, to die, and to be raised as the one and only Savior of all who will believe. And embrace this compassionate Jesus today if you never have. Our prayer is team will be ready for you, and we will be happy to speak and to pray with you if you have questions about how you can learn more about this. As you consider the compassion of Jesus to engage his messianic power for the good of sinners like these Gentiles and like you and me, consider also the compassion that he had on his disciples. A little bit of an implication here, but remember that the disciples should have known that Jesus was with them and that there was no need to worry about how they were going to take care of all these people and how they should have remembered that he had done it already on an earlier occasion. But I also think we need to consider the possibility that their wrong thinking here, or you could say their lack of thinking about the fact that Jesus could provide for these people might have been connected to something else too. In Matthew 14's account of the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus had fed this great hungry crowd in a desolate place after he had healed them of their diseases. But while that crowd apparently had all of that in common with the crowd in chapter 15, they were actually also quite different from the crowd, from this crowd in our text today. That crowd in chapter 14 was Jewish. This crowd was Gentile. And if the center of the issue regarding Jesus' miraculous ministry here revealed for us by Matthew in chapter 15 was his proclamation that the Messiah had come, that the kingdom of God was being ushered in, then it is not unlikely that part of the reason that the disciples might not have considered that Jesus would feed this crowd miraculously just like he had fed that crowd was that perhaps they assumed that a messianic banquet like that, was only for the Jews. And if the disciples were thinking, and we don't know for sure that they were, that Jesus wouldn't serve a Messianic banquet to Gentiles like he had done with the Jews, then they were wrong. And frankly, they should have known better. Even in this very context, Jesus had been exercising messianic salvation and grace and service to these Gentiles with his disciples present. But even if it's just as simple as the disciples not thinking about the fact that Jesus had just done this, then either way, they were wrong and weren't thinking correctly. And Jesus could have been justly exasperated by their failure to remember who he is and remember what his ministry is about, but he wasn't. He's compassionate. He just patiently and graciously continues to go through this conversation with them that they'd had earlier in chapter 14, leading to the exact same outcome in 15 as it happened in 14. And so note the compassion that he has, but that also leads us to the satisfaction that he brings. Just read again this conversation and the events that follow, starting in verse 34. Jesus says to these disciples, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven and a few small fish. And directing the crowd to sit down on the ground, he took the seven loaves and the fish and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples And the disciples gave them to the crowds, and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up seven baskets full of the broken pieces left over. Those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children. And after sending away the crowds, he got into the boat and went to the region of Magadan. I think that phrase in verse 37, the very beginning, is amazing. They all ate and were satisfied. They didn't get a snack they didn't have some and wish there was more they were all satisfied and that's the second part of what Jesus's ministry looks like here he brings satisfaction and while the satisfying provision of Jesus should in a way never be unexpected in another sense and in a just as vital sense it's totally unexpected in this setting because again these were Gentiles and what was Jesus doing when he fed the Jewish crowd? He didn't turn those loaves and fish in, verse four, in uh, chapter 14 into a feast for tens of thousands of people just so people could ooh and awe ah at his magic powers, so to speak. And he certainly didn't do it simply as a lesson to make sure people remember not to let anybody go hungry. He did it ultimately because he's the Messiah, and to prove it and to show that he was God's chosen king. And that just as God had miraculously provided bread for his people in the wilderness, in the books of Moses, through providing manna from heaven, God was providing bread from heaven of a different sort. The bread of life, Jesus, his son. And for Jesus to do this again, in an almost identical way, this time with Gentiles, could have been a bit shocking for Jewish observers and readers. Perhaps you can imagine a disciple or Jewish bystander saying to another, wait a second, he's doing this again for them? Maybe another was confused and thought, I thought dining with the Messiah through his miraculous provision of bread was something that we alone got to enjoy, his people. well, Friend, there is something deep and profound happening here. You remember in the old days, I know these kids don't know the joy of doing this, but in the old days you had to get up from your chair, and walk over to the VCR and push rewind. (laughs) You remember doing that? And then of course fast forward sometimes as well if you wanted to see something again or get to your favorite part. That's what we're gonna do here for just a minute, but with the scroll of your finger on your device or the turning of a page, go forward to Matthew 26. Matthew 26. And perhaps when you get home you can ask your parents, what rewinding a VCR means. <laughs> Matthew 26, verse 20. When it was evening, speaking of Jesus, he reclined at table with the twelve. Now skip down to verse 26. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread and, after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat. This is my body. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. You see this word back in verse 20? It says, when it was evening, he reclined at table with his disciples. That word reclined was a term with connotations of being seated in a festive banquet posture at a time of celebration and joy. It's in that position, reclining at table, that Jesus then establishes this new covenant meal of his supper and foretells even the future messianic banquet that will be enjoyed in the fully realized kingdom of his father, as he says in verse 29, I will not do this again until the day I do it with you in my father's kingdom. Now, rewind back to our passage. Matthew 15. Press rewind on that VCR and go to chapter 15 again in our text, and look at verse 35. It says, He directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And He took the seven loaves and the fish, and having given thanks, He broke them and gave them to the disciples. That phrase, in verse 25, sit down, can also be translated, recline. It is a word that also connotes a reclining banquet related festive posture and what is it that jesus does as he feeds these gentiles he gives thanks and breaks the bread and distributes the food just as he would do later in his establishment of the lord's supper in matthew 26 when he broke the bread after a blessing and gave it to the disciples Now rewind just a little bit further to where we've already been in Matthew 14, verses 19 through 20. See if this sounds familiar too. He said, excuse me, he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass and taking the loaves and the fish. He looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to his disciples. It's the same. In the ESV, that phrase, sit down on the grass, is the same connotation as the one in chapter 15 and the one in chapter 26. What does he do then as he begins to feed these thousands of Jews? He gives thanks, he breaks the bread, and he distributes it just like he would do in his establishment of the Lord's Supper in Matthew 26. What I'm saying is that apparently there was something deeply profound happening here at these feedings of these many people, Jesus was not only providing for needy people, though he certainly was. He was not only displaying his messianic power, though he certainly was. Rather, Jesus was also foreshadowing his messianic banquet this covenant banquet that he would establish in the Lord's Supper in which his people would participate in remembrance of him for literally thousands of years to come to this day. And then one day, and oh, may that day come soon when we enjoy it in our resurrected, glorified state. But you know, there's actually a little bit more I want you to rewind to. Press rewind again and go to Matthew 8. Matthew 8, verses 5 through 11. Jesus is in a Jewish region here. It says, verse 5, that he entered Capernaum and a centurion came forward to him. A centurion, of course, being a Roman soldier. So not a Jew. And this Roman soldier, soldier appeals to him. Verse 6, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And Jesus says to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I say to one, go, and he goes, and another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. And when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. And I tell you, verse 11, here it is, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. What Jesus was saying to this Roman centurion, this Gentile Man, is that even Gentiles like him, those who would come from East and West, in other words, people from all over the world, would one day enjoy the messianic banquet to come through faith like his? Even this Gentile Roman soldier could have faith in the Messiah. And look forward to a day of banquet with the Christ, the Jewish Messiah. And friends, that is exactly what the miraculous feeding of our passage today in Matthew 15 is about. It's about people like you and me welcomed to the table of Jesus simply through faith and simply by his grace. People like you and me, satisfied in Jesus because of all that he is and all that he has done. People like you and me, objects of his compassion despite our undeserving sinful natures. I wonder if the loaves and fish that Jesus miraculously turned into an abundant feast were more deeply satisfying than that Christmas steak was for me. It probably didn't taste as good, but I suspect it was more satisfying because it was a meal prepared by the king. A meal where people watched a Messiah that wasn't theirs in one sense, taking that bread, breaking it, giving thanks, and distributing it to them as a demonstration of his messianic saving power on their behalf in compassion and to satisfy them. When Jesus took that bread and broke it and gave thanks, just like he had already done in chapter 14, it was a foretaste of another similar meal that we saw in Matthew 26, where Jesus took bread, broke it, gave thanks, distributed it to his disciples where he then established the ordinance, as we call it, of the Lord's Supper. And it's that ordinance that we will celebrate together over these next several minutes just as the people of God have done ever since for 2,000 plus years. We read this together already, Matthew 26, 26 through 29, where it says, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And then he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Redeemer Bible Church, as we participate in this small covenant meal together, we do so as a memorial of the great saving power of Jesus, the chosen Messiah of God given as a sacrifice, given as our Savior. Just as that great crowd of Gentiles in Matthew 15 received a meal from his hand on that day, just as the disciples received his supper in the upper room several chapters later, we too have received this supper from him. And as we always seek to remind ourselves and each other, this is a supper, so to speak, for those who are his disciples. It's for those who, like the Gentiles of Matthew 15, want to be in his presence more than they even want to satisfy their immediate physical hunger, because they have been given new desires through the transforming work of the Holy Spirit. It's for those for whom it is true that Jesus is their greatest desire and their greatest satisfaction. And isn't it interesting in our passage for today that those people who believed this about Jesus, who believed that they needed him and his presence more than they needed anything else, were given satisfaction through that meal. And so friends, as we come to the Lord's table this morning, we remember our Savior Jesus, all that he is, and all that he has done. And it is a kind of exclusive meal. It's not intended for those who would claim on the outside to be Christians, but truly are not in Christ. Who have never repented of sin and trusted Jesus for salvation. And it's not intended to be received by those who may truly be disciples, but whose lives portray a lack of communion with the people of God. Listen to these words of warning. And correction from the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 11. I have them on the screen for you. In the following instructions, I do not commend you. Because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. When you come together, it is not the Lord's supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in, or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way also, when he took the cup, After supper, he said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And then Paul says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner manner, will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. And in light of these words of warning from scripture, as always, we're going to take a few moments to pray quietly in response to what we've heard from God's word and in preparation of our hearts for communion, seeking to examine ourselves along these lines. But before we do that, I also want to remind all of us who are in Christ to come to the table trusting in Christ. In other words, to not fret about not having lived perfectly and therefore being unworthy of the table. That's not the point of Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 11. Paul does warn us about partaking in this memorial while knowingly leaving strife and division in the body unaddressed, but he doesn't tell us to make sure that we've confessed an exhaustive list of every sin we've committed since the last time we had communion. And so in a real sense, the table is a place to run to for weary sinners, a place of grace and peace and love and hope. So as we take a few minutes in silent prayer and meditation, confess what may need to be confessed, but rest as well in our Christ. Let's take a few moments in prayer together.